Welcome back to another week of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, SJB3. And you can't tell this by listening, but the time is currently 2.33 a.m. on April the 18th. And the reason why this timestamp is important is because I am patiently awaiting Baby Bell's arrival. We are at week 40 and it's go time. And so today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to hit you with the after effects or the things that come after the episode. So I'm going to try to get all that here. One, make sure you're following us. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. I tried to take a Facebook break, but that didn't work out too well because I realized I had to still use my pages to handle the social media for the podcast. But that's Equity Matters Podcast like us there as well. You know that we've got a series of trainings up with the Cummings Graduate Institute, one around community engagement and the other around implicit bias. Both of those are now available. Sign up, sign up, sign up. And let's get into today's episode. And so we are talking about the cannabis industry. And in many ways, when we think about it, one of the first things that comes to mind for me specifically is just a lack of awareness or a lack of knowledge. And that actually translate into stigma in many cases. What we find is that people don't know much about cannabis use aside from what they see in the movies, thinking fast times at Ridgemont High, dazed and confused, um, half-baked, for instance, all classic films, but a lot of the imagery is what we associate with cannabis use. And the stigma that runs from that, I think of my church and I think of old folks and think of people who still refer to it as reefer and the impacts that it has. But when we pull back some of the layers and we start digging into the war on drugs, right? As an example, we start to see the consequences now in 2022, about 50 years later, that the people who have been locked up, who have been incarcerated, who have been punished, for crimes related to cannabis are now locked out of the multi-billion dollar cannabis industry. And in many cases, it's irreversible. It's, it's hard to get in, into it to begin with, understanding the various regulations, how your state is positioned, what's legal, what's not, what's medicinal, what's recreational. But the other pieces of not having access to the capital, there's just a wealth of barriers that prevent folks who look like me from engaging in this industry. But there's one. There's one in mind that is joining us on today's episode, and that is Jerome Crawford, a good friend of mine, alum from Michigan State University, who has been engaged in this work for quite some time and understands the role he has in unearthing these inequities and reversing them. And so without much further ado, I would love to introduce you all to Jerome Crawford. Jerome, you want to let the people know a little bit about you? I'll be glad to do it, man. Uh, JB, appreciate you having me, first and foremost, my brother. Um, it's an honor to be on here. And way to set the stage, man, the, the luxury. Okay. And do what I can, man, now to, to, to live up to the esteem of, of such a title, man. No, but um, so quick introduction for myself. Uh, currently, I am the Director of Legal Operations and Social Equity for Pleasantries. Pleasantries is a cannabis uh, company uh, startup, if you will, uh, here in the state of Michigan. 
and we um, are vertically integrated. What that means is we've got different channels, everything from retail stores to uh, manufacturing processing to most notably cultivation you think about grow operations is really sort of our, our lifeblood and our bread and butter and i'm sure we'll unpack it in more depth but the high highlight really of my role is you know legal operations pretty speaks for itself think of any in-house counsel for a company uh you know a contract's a contract's a contract ip issues an ip issue just so happens that the the sausage we make right uh, is that we actually we grow marijuana right and we sell it um, and the other side of my role, and we're sure we'll get into that in more depth, is the social equity piece, which has become a term of art in this industry, but that's leading the various initiatives that Pleasantries undertakes kind of from the inside out, uh, being in one of the largest manufacturers in the state. So what led you to this work exactly? Because I, I know you're a lawyer, naturally, but when you bridge the social equity piece, I mean, what, what brought you to that particular position? You know, it, it sort of organically just unfolded. Uh, to, to kick it backwards, uh, I mentioned I'm a lawyer by trade. I, I did the big law firm thing. So think about Suits and USA. And that, that was my life, right? And one of the largest law firms um, in, in the country. And Dickinson Wright spent years there. And then I branched off into in-house counsel roles, which the, the biggest distinction when people think about lawyer at lawyer firm versus in-house counsel is that at a law firm, you basically get a bunch of different clients, individual issues, and they hire the firm to handle that one particular issue. Whereas when you're in-house counsel at a company, you, you live there, right? You're not only the attorney, you're also an employee, right? So every single thing company deals with from a legal perspective, you know, goes through the legal department, legal team, which, you know, how much you touch might vary based on the company size, how many lawyers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, during my entire practice before coming to Pleasantries, I came over in November of 2020. Before that time, uh, you know, my whole, you know, focus, if you will, was that, you know, you're practicing law on one end, but you got these, I call it extracurricular things that you do. So I've been very involved in the DE&I space, diversity, equity, inclusion, another sort of term of art, which started as DNI and at one point it was just diversity. Uh, so I've done it through organizations that were normally service-based, Wolverine Bar Association, one of the, you know, the largest Black lawyers in Oregon State, and American Bar Association, and you, know, you name it. That's how my service work found itself. And when I came over to Pleasantries, as we know in the cannabis industry, and I'm, I'm sure we got to dive into this, bro, is that the cannabis industry has a sordid and complicated history, right? Because before it was a quote-unquote legalized industry, I mean, people were buying and selling weed, you know, anywhere. Um, even when it was, quote, not legal and technically you could be prosecuted for it, et cetera. Uh, so it was really a cool opportunity, man, for me to blend uh, my day job with things I'm passionate about already. Social justice, equity, criminal justice reform, you know, all of that, where I can actually say that significant portions of my day sometimes I don't even feel like a job because it's something I'm, I'm just genuinely passionate about. So, you know, to fast forward it back to today, when I came to the company and, you know, we're thinking, hey, there's a legal need, right? That's what justifies, you know, it's needing you here. We really spend the conversation myself and, and fellow members of the leadership team about, hey, this social equity thing is something there. Like it wasn't an advertised title. We just kind of talked our way through it and said, this makes perfect sense. And we really have a need here for it. So there was mutual buy-in on both sides. And that just further excited me to, to come aboard, man. No, that's dope. That's dope. Yeah, uh, I'm ready to to pick this this topic apart because there's a lot of curiosity around it. I mean, there's like the the whole what what are they really doing back there? Is it just yeah. a big weed shop? And I mean, it's a it's a whole enterprise. So we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that. yeah. So you mentioned the history of 
marijuana, of drugs. Let's talk about how the history of marijuana has created stigma in our society. That's, that's an excellent question. I, and literally, we were just, we have a, a feature upcoming soon. I'd love to say the name, but we got to wait for it to drop. But they were coming in and filming this big YouTube series, uh, you know, at our grow facility and whatnot. Uh, earlier today and asked the exact same question we unpacked the, the stigma so my background I'll take you a step further i'm a native detroiter man uh, born and raised on the west side of the city i still live in detroit now but for me going to michigan state for undergrad and law school you know this is where i've essentially always called home and stigma around cannabis weed marijuana whatever you want to call it has that been there oftentimes we were told it was a bad thing without always understanding why it was bad right and a lot of that is connected to criminalization, prohibition, right? If you're, if, if something, you know, if I'm caught with that thing in my pocket, my hand using or doing that thing that I could, you know, get arrested for, I could go to jail, right? I could quote unquote, get in trouble. Well, I'm, that thing's bad without you even ever telling me that it's bad, right? Unlike maybe even alcohol or cigarettes, where well, they're bad based on your age. But if you're, you know, 21 or 18 respectively, then you're good. So Cannabis has really dealt with a, a, a weird background in that, and this may be a little known fact, I had to learn about it myself. It's a documentary I highly recommend checking out. Um, it's called The War on Drugs, uh, or, or sorry, How the War on Drugs Targeted Black America. Um, and it's called The Human Toll was the name of it, T-O-L-L, uh, done by Vanity Fair and Pax Labs and a partner we work with called The Last Prisoner Project, which is basically in, in advocacy organization for the release of nonviolent cannabis offenders. Um, to tie that in, in this documentary, you actually learn that there was a period of time where marijuana was legal, like the same tinctures and stuff that you can go buy at retail stores now, totally legal, right? Um, there was nothing illegal about it. Prohibition did not quite exist. But there were packages of laws that were created, certain elected officials and, and government that wanted to see this become a criminalized thing. As we know, a war on drugs was not really a war on drugs, but a war on people against impoverished communities, namely black and brown communities. Um, and so that, is a t that has created the stigma. I think education has helped us really learn and understand, man, that, oh, inherently, there's nothing wrong with it at all. You know, I don't think, I think about my job here, that people that know me, I'm not a historical, like, weed guy, right? I'd never even done it until like probably a few years ago. Friends of mine did, homies, it just, it just wasn't, you know, my particular play. So I think my even presence in the industry does a lot for educating because people say, oh, oh Rome's doing it? Oh, oh cool, right? Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I love destigmatizing. I love breaking down stereotypes. And then you get to kind of challenge the stereotypes through education. My job is not to convince anybody that, hey, you should go smoke too, right? Or you should go consume or do edibles or it is totally your prerogative. The same way I wouldn't tell anybody you go drink. But I will educate and provide truth, man. So the um the history of the of marijuana, namely the prohibition, man, has has created the stigma that exists today. But the cool part of the legalized industry gives us an opportunity to break down that stigma and destroy those stereotypes. Uh, and it's one that we take on, man, pretty boldly here. And and that in some respects, I think starts from, and continues with me. So, are there any other remnants of the war on drugs that show up in our current cannabis boom? hundred uh, <laughs> percent. I literally just reposted something on my Instagram um, about an hour ago from uh, well-known attorney Benjamin Crump, you know, Trayvon Martin's attorney and an attorney for many others in the social justice movement for those that have uh, had negative encounters with law enforcement. And it, it was a post set to America's and it, it had 
Derek Chauvin, you know, the ex-police officer that killed George Floyd and how he got 22 and a half years. And then there was a, a black man picture. It was right. His name escapes me. But how he was given, I believe, a life sentence. And this was just in 2019. He got sentenced. Wow. So this legal industry has existed for quite some time. So the remnants are still here um, to the point that right now it is still federally illegal which gives difficulty because you basically have states that are islands. You got, you know, if you count the number of states that have done either complete legalization, like recreational, and the states that have done even medical, um, you're in 30 some states now. And it's really interesting in, in opinion, I won't tell, pull everybody into the weeds of it, but <laughs> Justice, Justice Clarence Thomas actually wrote an opinion today, I believe it just released, and I got to get through it in more depth, but it's starting to undermine and unpack, like the federal government can't hang its head anymore, like this is federally illegal. They're saying like, yeah, maybe 15 years ago, you could say that, but you can't quite do that anymore. So, you know, the the, the remnants that sort of still exist right now are, are the fact that, um, you know, people are still getting prosecuted. They're still getting sentenced. A lot of jurisdictions like Michigan generally take a bit of a hands-off approach. Like, don't give us a, don't, you know, operate somewhat within the bounds, right? And people aren't going out of their way. But, but hell, I mean, if you think about um, uh, Alice Caruso, the Lakers player that very recently, got popped in Texas, right? And got not just his like weed confiscated, got arrested, right? Because TSA, you know, was was being, I would say very overzealous. So those are some of the remnants of the prosecution. And then the other remnants are about just the boom. And, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have to dive in here, man, is that the other remnants are because of the prohibition, just a barrier to entry is much more difficult for those that come from these disproportionately impacted communities. So let's just go ahead and jump into it. What are some of those barriers that prevent um, consumers and communities of color from participating? Yeah, um, yeah, I think the biggest ones are financial. And you know, here's what I love to say it. If you started a brand new industry today, let's assume we were around for the automotive boom, right? And you had the benefit of technology and social media and such, uh, or even focusing on something else that was criminalized before that it was then decriminalized, alcohol, prohibition. Um, who is gonna be best suited to jump in the industry? Those that have resources, namely financial resources. Now, due to the history of our country, well, it's a well-known fact that minority communities, colors, just across the board have less of that, right? For a number of reasons, slavery, other types of oppression, there, there's a ton of reasons, right? Systemic racism. It just so happens that the war on drugs, which was unequally applied, just exacerbated man it amplified all of those like social ills to the nth degree to such a point where yeah it's already been hard for say community of color to get involved because of brand new industry but it's even harder because that those same communities have been over criminalized likely have had negative touches with the law for that exact same product which you're now making legal right so that's probably one of the biggest barriers barriers to entry um another one i think is the lack of lack of information um Knowledge is power in this industry, especially when you have a nascent space that is figuring itself out right every day. Um, you realize that just if, some people say, if I just knew right what it took to go and get licensed, and, and I'm talking Michigan, I always make this point, man, that like cannabis is very much like everywhere is an island because again, no interstate is allowed legally, right? It's federally illegal. So every state. So, so if my comments come off Michigan centric, I'm sure that's why. But a lot of it, man, is coming down to if I knew, right? If I know how to get in the industry, that's a big, big barrier to, barrier to entry, um, what it takes to operate. I mean, one crazy fact that I think about education at the time, 
is to this day, and, and Michigan's unique in the fact that we had medical legalization you know, much earlier than you had what we call adult use recreational, which is basically just have an ID and you can go purchase. You don't need a medical marijuana card. Uh, and then we have a caregiver market, which is what we call the gray market here. So before you had complete like retail stores, people were able to buy through caregivers, which could grow a certain amount of plants, you know, for themselves and for their patients that had medical marijuana cards. It is still and really not well-known fact that people can just go and purchase on their own, right? That way you go to a liquor store, right? If you want to just buy yourself a bottle of wine or something like that. A lot of people don't even know that, where to this day, I feel like every week I have that conversation. People say, oh, I don't need my card. And I say, no. We're, we're, we're totally recreational. So that impacts obviously, you know, uh, consumers, but but also you think about those that come from communities of color as well, about how they want to participate in the industry. Um, and there's another aspect that I'll, that, I'll, that I'll leave on this note is that participation is beyond ownership. Ownership makes the headlines and I'm all for it. I want to see more increased black and brown ownership. But unfortunately, I think if we focus just there, we're so narrow-sighted that folks get themselves into a tizzy, get upset, and they miss the fact that there's an entire org chart right? Like our company, we got one CEO, right? We have, we have, you know, one set of maybe shareholders and whatnot, but for opportunities of investment that could open up. But let's not forget about the rest of the org chart, right? I think about the retail team and the HR team and, and the legal team like myself, you know, um, those are additional ways to create participation throughout the industry. So what have you observed around like legalization? Has that been a lever? Has that been a greater barrier? I mean, you would think that, oh, it's, it's legal now, therefore it opens up the, the floodgates and the, the doors for all. Are you mm -hmm. seeing that in the industry? As far as you mean legalization, legalization, like do you think that's the best way to go right now? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, so I guess the question would be, is that creating opportunities for more communities of color to participate through the legalization mm -hmm. of cannabis? Yes, yes and no. Um, and, and I answer it that way for a reason. Yes, and, and and I personally believe legalization is the best way to path forward. Just you know, I worked in an automotive industry by nature. A couple of companies I was in house counsel for, and it wanted a lot of parallels I draw from it are that you know, when you have a legalized industry, a market, you got better quality, safety, consistency of the products. I'm always thinking about the end user, the consumer, right? And here you're talking about something that's going to go in somebody's body, right? Whether it, uh, you know consume via, via inhalation of smoke, or you're talking about maybe edibles or whatever type of products, beverages, which are on the way, all that. Um, for that, then legalization is definitely a path forward. And naturally, when you create, we are creating jobs, literally, right? Um, the reason I said sometimes I feel like not the path forward is because let's just be real. I mean, we hear this in common parlance, particularly barbershop talk, right? <laughs> Hair salon talk. People are like, yo, people were buying weed before weed was legalized. Right. And they weren't having necessarily a hard time getting it. So what we like to call the traditional market, even before there was a quote gray market in Michigan where you had caregivers, people had ways of getting it. That in many ways was how people were. That was their form of employment, for lack of a better phrase. Right. So in some respect, the legalized market arguably right, could be pushing people out of those traditional or gray spaces. Right. Which, in my opinion, opinion, we should, right? Because it's just better for everybody, right? All involved, safer, you know what I mean? Consistency, all of that. Nobody getting popped, you know, for getting picked up and arrested and silly stuff. Um, but without education, you know, then you could minimize those opportunities. I think the biggest way is telling people, like, here's how you maybe make that transition, right? I mean, you, you, you can't quite put on your resume if you've been growing, growing for 10 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you got, you, you got, 
quite a bit of cultivation experience, right? We got to find ways to connect those dots and say, hey, you will be great coming to a licensed facility because you know exactly what you're doing, right? Um, your expertise, you know, is, is going to be huge there. And, and I look at some of our grow team, same thing, man. Like, you know, these are folks that have been technically in the industry before it was an industry. And so that allows them to, to again, operate, I think, more freely uh, and not have to worry about taking different, different ways home every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> to, to avoid uh, possibly getting picked up. Right, right, right. So in, in thinking about that, right, and knowing that there's mm -hmm. individuals out there with expertise, what's being done to encourage participation in the industry from people, or at least by people from communities that have been historically impacted by prohibition? Yeah. Um, you know, so here, here's, a, here's a number of angles that I think you can, you can attack this one from. So when you think about what's being done to actually encourage that participation, um, one, I think it starts with individuals like myself, right? That, you know, representation matters. We say a ton of that, right? We say representation matters, seat at the table, sure. And it does, but it's what you do with that platform. So when I came on at Pleasantries, you know, it was a sort of a touted thing. And we didn't know this at the time, it just organically happened. Uh, me coming here made me the first black in-house counsel of a Michigan cannabis manufacturer. Like a major manufacturer like this was, was whoa, it's big news. But every time I got asked about that, and I said, look, and if I'm the last, I didn't do my job. And that doesn't mean that they got to come in and pleasantry or something, but it should be a catalyst, right, for a change. And I was very fortunate to be able to say that just in the past month, we actually now have hired the second, right, who is a, a, it was a mentee of mine as well as our chief legal officer. So uh, Miles Baker's not come aboard, and, and he worked closely with Ben Sobchak and our chief legal officer. And like that to me is the excitement, right? When I get to be able to say, you know, it, it, the buck didn't stop with me. So that's one way you think about, particip about participation. Um, another way is me sharing information, right? Going back to my community, those of us that learn, right? You think about, because I come from the impact community. That's right on point to your question. How do you, those from the impact communities, right? How do you then create, right? How do you encourage participation? Well, I get to go and speak at not just lawyer events, but non-lawyer events, business events about here's what it takes. I tip all the time. Like, like I said, we need you through the entire org chart. You're a finance professional and you want to bring that skill and expertise and you want to be in the industry, bet, okay? Here's how you might try to position yourself for that, right? And one, you got to be good at what you do. Like I had to be a good lawyer, right? Can't just love weed, right? <laughs> it's like going, going to Nike and be like, man, I just love shoes. Bro. Man, I just I love them shoes, here. man. I want to work here, bro. And it's like, but you said you're a marketing professional. Like where's your portfolio, right? Or are you great at HR? What have you done? But, but, but I love kicks, bro. I can figure that out, right? <laughs> like, you got to bring the expertise. Um, Yo, Nike has been, like, home oh. people lately. <laughs> just just reaching out to them, talking yes. on the phone. Yes. They're like, uh, no, <laughs> we don't do things that way. <laughs> They're not playing, bro. They're not playing. Um, but, you, like, you, they don't. They don't, bro. They don't. And, and you, you, you just you got to have the skill set behind the surface. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you can't. It's beyond the love for it. That matters. You know what I mean, but but you got to be got to be a good attorney too. We got to be a good, you know, insert profession or 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 focus here. You know, um, another way is is um, I think understanding that there are opportunities. Like I always talk about the ownership, ownership, ownership piece. Sometimes your way in is maybe you know I like to call it. There's the like cannabis direct and cannabis like adjacent ways to get involved. So what makes the headlines? People think about the marijuana industry. They think about most commonly retail stores and grow operations, right? Cultivation. Those are two channels people think about. 
there's another dozen channels, you know what I mean, at least that you can think of ways to get involved, right? You could create a consumption lounge. Consumption lounges, particularly here in Michigan, are going to be a new way of coming forward, right? Because the same way that you want to go to a bar to consume your beverages and not just always drink at home or, in, you know, by yourself or at a friend's house, you're going to make the same thing for, for, for marijuana, right? So that's a new play. Maybe you're, you're an event type of person, boom. Uh, speaking of events, temporary event licenses. Maybe you like to do pop-up events, stuff like that, okay? You work on doing a slew of events throughout the year that are pretty large-scale events. That's how you can touch the industry. You might want to touch the industry through being a secure transporter, right? You got to move product and money related to product in different ways, right? Then you can't just hire the Brinks truck, right? So another reason that, you know, you can touch the industry. Um, processing facilities. So think about co-packers, right? When you take somebody's finished flower they've grown, not all of them have a facility that they directly, and then they're going to take that product and then turn it somewhere else, put it into your Mylar bags, get ready for stores. So um, there's so many different other ways, I think, to get involved in the industry. And that's, that just comes back to that point about education, right? And that's how you encourage participation. It's you sitting in a seat, maybe on an orchard somewhere, or maybe you establish a business that's somehow connected to it. And then the last part is the cannabis adjacent stuff. Um, man, to keep it a buck, we struggle with service providers. Um, you got a lot of trash out there, sadly, right? New industry and, and let's keep it real. People don't always work with us, right? Because there's still that stigma. It's back to your, back to your point earlier, how this is all interconnected, man. There's certain, I'll give you an example, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, our insurance right now is through, is through HAP. Blue Cross Blue Shield initially really wouldn't rock with us. And when they said they would, the premiums were so outrageous. We're like, we're not going to have our employees blowing their entire paycheck to pay for insurance, right? It just makes sense. And, and we wanted to make sure we're being very generous with the plan that gave folks benefits, but that's just not feasible, right? So they basically priced themselves out of the game intentionally because they didn't really want to rock with this. Uh, banks, certain banks, we still can't use you know, federally backed banks. So you got to work more with like local credit unions, right? Um, thank God we're out of the duffel bag game. <laughs> Right. <laughs> once was right um far safer but that's a barrier so similarly think about your service providers consultants you know your hr information system uh, information system uh things like that some of them are straight up you know cannabis specific or your 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 point of sale system right for actually retail that you can use to not because you can't use swipe a credit card which might use a debit card right or even like your, your cash transactions all these are generally like we're leaf whatever or something cannabis cannabis or cannabis and man, you have to sift through the trash. So if you can offer a dope service of some sort and you know what you're doing and, and it's not as beyond just a really nice PDF or a deck you put together, you can be a game changer in this industry, particularly think about newer markets. Because remember, this is still every island. So pick a state like, a, say, a New York, Virginia. They're literally coming online right now. Maybe you're rocking in one of those states or you can, can start up something in those states. Hey, be one of the first to market for some of these services because um, other big players from other states are always looking. But, you know, if you got roots in certain places, you can be a game changer. So thinking broadly, right, and thinking about game changing and system change in this matter, and we've talked a lot about ownership, but are there other levers for creating a more equitable cannabis industry, whether that be policy, programmatic? What are what are some of the things that we could be doing? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a ton, bro. And I will. I'll take from the angle. Actually, I'll, I'll break down a little bit about our social equity plan. I think that helps answer this question. So I mentioned that, you know, what social equity is, rebalancing the scales, right? Simply put, we say is do well and do good. Like, be very clear. This is a for-profit industry. Um, we're not a nonprofit. 
the difference is that unlike say the automotive industry we talked a lot about, there's not this onus on having to pay it forward and try to rewrite the imbalances and the wrongs of the past. Like none of us who sit in this industry are responsible for the war on drugs, but frankly, at least as we believe, it's our job to be part of the change, right? And part of reset, resetting, this, resetting the balance. So we do that through four pillars. A few of them we've already talked about. You know, first one is we call access to value chain, number one, or participation. Talk a ton about that. Number two, education. That's again, a lot of that destigmatization, uh, breaking down stereotypes. So external education is also internal. Um, the third one, and this answers this question right now, legislation and advocacy. So uh, the fourth pillar, and again, we'll come back to the third one, you know, because that really answers this question, bro. The fourth pillar is what we call good neighbor. And that's basically um, where we support communities that support us. So we uh, started our first retail store in Michigan or in East Lansing, excuse me, you know, right at the alma mater, Michigan State. Um, and the first thing we did was, hey, let's how we benefit this community. But we decided to establish a book scholarship for MSU students. And to uh, be eligible, you had to basically, you know, hail from the same, one of the same disproportionately impacted communities that the marijuana regulatory agency, you know, lays out, you know, in their guidelines. So again, we're trying to, you know, repay and back, pay it for it right back in that cycle to break down the vicious cycle that has created many, you know, many of these same issues. And so, um, but back to your point, man, about, you know, um, the discussions and what's happening reform and, and, and how does that come up? Well, legislation and advocacy is where we like to couch all of our social equity work in, involved in supporting pieces of legislation that uh, are for reform, uh, actually ourselves getting involved in expungement work is, is, is really important for us. Um, I've been very fortunate man, to do expungement for people very close to me uh, and, and, and others. And so it's something that we know there's a, you know, a lot of work to be done in there because uniquely man in our industry having a conviction namely a drug related cannabis related conviction nonviolent, that's not a scarlet letter the way it might be in so many other industries right um where you can't even get an interview you can't get in the door because you gotta check the box right? right so for us we're actually looking for you right assuming all of the background check stuff you know comes out like hey i took the time I'm like please apply i'm trying to find more of you and we've made it a point to try to go away from Indeed and other things like that to get more of those the applicants. And that, that goes right back in that first pillar, participation, access in the value chain. Um, as far as the reform itself, Michigan's had a lot of things underway. Uh, the Clean Slate Act, which is a big expungement law that is just not coming into effect, is going to do two things. One, it's going to create for automatic expungements. So you're going to have certain uh, drug-related crimes, namely, namely cannabis crimes, that will be automatically expunged. Um, as well as just expanding the general things you can get expunged. So under our current law, it's either one felony or two misdemeanors, right? Under the expanded law, clean slate, you're gonna be able to get multiple felonies now, as well as what they call like a one bad night provision, which I think is really interesting. So for instance, sometimes somebody get pulled over and you get hit with like four felonies from the same traffic stop, right? Um, well, now that quote one bad night provision could allow you to be able to get them all expunged if they're all from the same situation, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, that's how you see these conversations come up. And, and I think it's important when you see operators like us, right? We are, again, a business, we're running business. It's important when we speak up and we help separate the issues. It's, it's too common people conflate the two when they say, oh, well, because of criminal justice reform stuff, but we also figuring out how to legalize the industry. Those are two separate conversations, right? 
you can and should, in our opinion, in my opinion, you should be letting people out of prison yesterday, right, for these nonviolent cannabis offenses. Um, and then you can separately still figure out how to regulate the market, right, or how to deregulate on a federal standpoint. That's got nothing to do with bodies that's still sitting in sales, right, for nonviolent crimes. Um, some of them longer than their peers for actual violent crimes, right? I mean, the, the, the way with the way mandatory minimums have come into play in the war on drugs have just lock people up far longer than they should be. I mean, our our longest serving nonviolent cannabis offender in the state uh, just just got out Michael Thompson about three months ago. And he was he's a beacon, right? Because wow, look at this brother man did 25 plus years, you know, because he got popped in, you know, like a drug sting or something like that. Totally nonviolent. That's it. But should have been up. There's so many more Michael Thompsons, right? And so his presence raises awareness and that creates discussion and naturally organizations like ours, oh, we're going to support a cause and everything. We got to keep ringing the bell, right? We got to make noise and stay on the mountaintop. I think that's part of our recognizing as a benefit and a blessing to operate in this space. It's not a sense of guilt, right? You don't feel bad. Oh, we're making money for what's legal. Like, yeah, we are. But we have to accept and understand that this is a really sordid, ugly, complicated history to cannabis and how it's been regulated. Uh, and criminalized and how can we be part of the change you want to see real talk yeah, yeah. so draw one just you know thanks for hopping on again but is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with to, to ponder beyond this episode right there's anything that we didn't cover you know the the biggest thing that 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 i want to share is and uh, probably like a broken record with it man is um educate educate yourselves I think it's worth unpacking why you have a preconceived notion about marijuana. Because everyone has one. Maybe positive, maybe negative, maybe neutral. I encourage everyone and challenge everyone to unpack why you have that, right? What is it influenced by? Is it influenced by a childhood experience? Is it influenced by an elder in the family? Is it influenced by you know, a, a relative or a friend that had a negative experience, right? Um, either from consumption or maybe criminalization, right? Um, my encouragement is when you unpack those, I think we can further destigmatize. We can further break down these stereotypes that's around this thing. And it's, that's what I love about it the most. It's not even, again, as I've shared earlier, that I've been just always like a, a weed heady forward guy. In fact, just the opposite. I've actually, you know, consumed more now that I learn more about it myself, right? Now that I'm in the industry and understand more about it. Before that, it was never my thing because I had my own preconceived notions, right? And you didn't have all these strands. You had like Reggie and Kush, man. It was like, that's all I got. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Two. And one or two. <laughs> one or two, bro. I'm like, okay, I'm all set, right? And so then I was like, oh, I understand so much more now. And the more I learn, and I watch like my parents who got their medical marijuana cars and see things work for them with having chronic pain. My mom herself has MS, you know, and see things that that that, that have helped them um, is really enlightening for me, man. So that's really one nugget I want to share with people, man, is just to cha challenge that, you know, that stereotype, challenge your viewpoint, learn more, unpack why, because I think we'll realize that, that a lot of what we believe, what we've been taught, comes from these other places. And, and when we go through that process, then I think that helps funnel and fill the energy toward the meaningful change of not just deregulation, because that's about just money, but decriminalization and getting bodies out of sales uh, and then taking and wiping away that stigma that's attached to people that have ever been touched by this in a negative way, man. So that's a big thing for me. So how do people keep up with you and pleasantries? 
So um, with Pleasantries, you can check us out. Our, our website is enjoypleasantries.com or just give us a Google search. Uh, the keyword is that it's, it's just like it sounds, Pleasantries, uh, but with two E's instead of T-R-I-E-S-T-R-E-E-S. -E -E um, you can check us out on social medias, which is uh, at We Are Pleasantries on our Instagram and then just pleasantries on Facebook, you know, LinkedIn, uh, all other, all other social media. Um, and there you'll learn about a lot of things we're doing, namely is that we're gonna be expanding into Massachusetts uh, in the uh, next about month or so. So we've got two retail stores here in Michigan, um, big grow operation, big processing. We're gonna be in Massachusetts ultimately with three retail stores in a grow that is twice the size of the one here. So that'll be 110,000 square foot uh, operation. Uh, for myself personally, you can check me out on, on all platforms, Jerome Crawford, uh, my uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, uh, at jcrawfordesq. I just follow Pleasant Trees. <laughs> my guy. <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, man, appreciate you hopping on the pod. I think, as you as you explained many times, it's it's really about the education piece, because I know even talking to like my own parents, like they're just like, oh, you know, weed is so bad. It's the gateway drug. I'm like, come on. Like, mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. it was so bad, then why are there, why is it like a billion dollar industry at this point? Like it's, it's an opportunity for innovation. It's an opportunity for new entrepreneurs. Like, yeah. And, and unfortunately a lot of folks are missing it because they're holding on to this old poor knowledge. 100%. And, that, and I love that you said it that way because it starts in, in our community, right? Black community. We, we're a proponent of it, even if it's been forced upon us, right? Uh, what you messing around with that reefer for? Oh, right? that's, yeah, that's grandma right there. That's grandma you smell, right you there. smell like outside. You <laughs> like, smell like outside. You smell like you got that grass. You smell like outside. You wonder why is it sometimes it was because, heck, even how it got referred to back in the day, bro, is jazz cigarettes. The jazz cigarette is because it came from jazz culture, which is you know, heavily popular in black communities, black and brown communities, right? And that was a way of, 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 of again, calling it something different, making it feel out of pocket and odd. And so, yeah, man, I think there's a lot to be done with it. Like I mentioned, my parents are never big on like, I know if I came home to high school smelling like a blunt, it's going to be a problem, right? <laughs> but but to see them, oh man, it, it's, it's, it's night and day, right? Just even an understanding of it, because now they've got the knowledge and the education around it. And again, my parents, neither one of them still going to be unrolling no flower. They're not cut like that. That's not how they're moving. But breaking you know, it down they, in the they, living room. They're not going to be breaking down the blunt, man. No, but what they might do is she is fine. Oh, this edible helps. And, you know, these topical CBD things help. And okay, cool. And even that alone is monumental, dude. So yeah, bro, it, it's, I think it's on us, man, to be, to be part of that change and just spark the conversation. And I'll try to convince people, but you spark the conversation. That might be the, the title of the episode, Spark the Conversation. I like that. Oh, I like that. I didn't even think about the double entendre either. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a bit. Hey, thanks, Jerome. Appreciate you hopping on and definitely be in touch, brother. Always, my brother. Appreciate you.